You're listening to Unpaused, a podcast for women who want to stage a career comeback or mastermind a new one after an extended break from work. I'm your host, Judy Stewart, and if you want to reclaim your career but don't know how, then this is the podcast for you. Let's meet our guest for today. Since the launch of his members-only travel club in New York last year, David Pryor has become something of a media darling. All of a sudden, he's everywhere you look. The fact that he's here on the Unpause podcast might be seen as part of this phenomenon too, but it's not. While he's someone who has really made it in the Big Apple, he's also my eldest son's oldest friend. They were born a day apart, and if truth be told, he was often to be found sitting at my kitchen bench on lazy Sunday afternoons, way back when. I might know more about David than he cares to admit, but one thing I do know is that the boy who was drinking in the colours, tastes and smells of Sunday lunches long ago in my kitchen has found his footing on a formidable international scale. The cornerstone of this interview is the defining experience David had of pitching his manifesto to create a place to experiment with and experience ideas about what food could be at Somerset House in London. This manifesto took everything he'd done as a travel editor for Condé Nast, everything he'd learned and witnessed as a student at Carlo Petrini's Immersive University of Gastronomic Sciences in Piedmonté, and his observations as chief of staff to legendary food activist Alice Waters in Berkeley, California, a role that brought him into contact with everyone from Michelle Obama down. All of these experiences added luster to his brilliant pitch. While we will never know the reason why the project didn't get off the ground, its rejection shook the aspirant creative to his core. How to recover? By realising that nothing is ever wasted. Moving to New York, the world's media epicentre, he recast his material into a series of news stories, pitched them to every travel editor he knew, then went on the road for 200 days to capture those stories in print and on film restoring his professional nerve along the way. Pryor was born out of the next evolution of my editorial career. I guess what I'd seen is that that the current way of telling stories has changed. The media landscape has changed so dramatically. And the model behind that, which is partnerships and advertising and subscriptions, really isn't relevant anymore in terms of a revenue stream. And that's broken the system. And so there isn't an ability to tell interesting stories in the way that we used to traditionally. I'm generally interested in telling stories, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's the medium of the written word or video or, or, or even podcasts. Uh, it can also be something that's experiential. And so I wanted to see if I could turn my ability in crafting a travel feature, which is not only just the words, but the itineraries and the cover-worthy moments, I call them, and breathing life into them as an experience for people to have. So it's much more than just arranging itineraries for people who have a more ambitious point of view in terms of their travel experiences. Yeah, I think the idea of a a travel agent or a concierge service is completely antiquated and the internet kind of destroyed that model. What we're doing really is designing experiences and that sort of sounds a little bit pretentious but I guess if you figure out the time and the place and find the right essence of the place and those people that can breathe life into the experience and then you 
you have the people that you're working with, you put them in front of that or you put them as part of that, that's really something special. And it can be not only something that is truly relaxing or indulgent or all of those things that we think about traditional travel, but now something that is really enriching to all the senses and transformative in so many different ways. And when you travel, every sense is stimulated. And it's not only that you are in that relaxation mode, but you're feeding your intellect, seeing new things. It's opening your eyes to... But also you're immersing yourself in a culture that it's... Most cultures are very hard to penetrate, even here, where everything's very much out on the street. It's hard to feel that you're not actually just being sent in a direction that the, quotes, tourist authorities, unquotes, want you to go in. Exactly. And if I'd said that one of my skills, or at least I think probably my, my greatest, maybe only true skill is getting under the skin of a particular place, and that comes from being an editor... I'm editing the place in the moment, distilling the essence of that and editing it down. I mean, we're here in Brisbane at the moment and I'm thinking about, well, what are the true attributes of Brisbane? What do I think about when I think about the idea of Brisbane? Well, it's not a whole bunch of concrete and glass. I think about tin and timber and the jacarandas and I just had this morning this incredible breakfast of mangoes and mulberries and that slightly astringent passion fruit and I think about all those things I was pondering what would be the great Brisbane experience if I was to send people there and I think well it's not to stay in a hotel in the downtown you'd be thinking about okay big wide verandas that subtropical temperature that there's something in the air here too I don't I don't know I humidity well the humidity yeah (laughs) but but then when the humid like right now it's sort of this slightly warm slightly crisp temperature but you can smell the night scented jasmine you can smell the jacarandas that are just kind of rotting a little bit Mm. muddy on the pavement and I just think about all those senses and then I think how would I edit it down I mean Brisbane is a difficult thing because I'm from here so I'm very harsh on the city, actually. But if I step back and think, okay, yeah, what are these two great attributes? This is a city that doesn't have those postcard familiar things. But there is something incredibly underrated about that. I was looking at the Indigenous art collection. I mean, that's the only, you can only see those certain things in certain places. So wherever I'm thinking about a destination, wherever I'm thinking about a place, I'm thinking about distilling the essence of it. And there's a slightly romantic view of that but why not why not celebrate the diversity I don't want to go to a place that's exactly the same so I don't think about travel in the sense of thread count and infinity pools I think about it as an experience of diversity because there's so much color in the world I think travel can be a powerful way to retain those colors and also to retain those memories it's so hard to remember when you're traveling things that are just the same as everywhere else. Whereas if you have those amazing experiences, they really stay with you for a long time. And it might just be a smell or a taste Mm -hmm. or a a storm or Mm -hmm. a, a gust of wind. So David, Having come to this point where you've just launched prior in New York and you're about to launch it in Australia and then in London, so you've had a big splash of publicity and it all looks very seamless and easy and glamorous, how did you, at the age of 35, reach this rather lofty point? Well, I mean, it does seem very easy, I guess. 
uh, but it has not been. <laughs> no, I mean, I've known you for your whole life, so it's not as if I don't right. know some of the lumps and bumps that have happened along the way. Right. But in the last 10 years, you've really focused and you've had some pivotal moments that have taken you onto this path. Mm-hmm. I mean, for a boy from Brisbane, Queensland, Australia, it's been an incredible journey, but I understand that it hasn't always been easy. What's been the big career shift that really took you from one direction completely towards another? Well, a couple of things. I studied at a university in Italy called the Università di Scienze Gastronomiche, which is the University of Gastronomic Science, and that was founded by Carlo Petrini, who started the slow food movement, and it's in Piemonte Bra in northwest Italy. Now, before that, I was totally lost. I was kind of a little bit wild as out of school and completely didn't know what I wanted to do. I was always interested in food and then I fell into working in cafes and then the editors of a magazine called Vogue Entertaining, which Australians will be very well um, aware of, used to come into this little cafe that I worked in. And one day I struck up a conversation with one of the editors and then went to work on a photo shoot because I was in love with magazines, you know. Did you say, I'm interested or how did it come about? Yes, I did. I don't do this consciously, but I identify, and it's usually women almost without exception, Mm -hmm. that I really admire. Mm -hmm. And one of them was one of the editors there. And I guess that's actually, now that I'm thinking about it, I, I probably haven't said this before, but I think that it's been these women in my life that understand sensuality and beauty, but that are also incredibly smart. I have maybe five women in my life who are, one of which is you, who I know will always be there for me, even if I'm at a low ebb, which I have been many times. And they can pick me up because it's great friends, but it's also, I think you need to build relationships with people outside of your own family that understand where your professional skill set lies. It's a reciprocal arrangement. I mean, my sense is that, yes, you've built relationships with some very important women, Uh but you've built great friendships with them as well. And it's been a very reciprocal relationship. It's a group of older, wiser experienced women who have invested in your success exactly I'm not I'm by no means obsequious to them but I feel like yeah it's a real mentor you're trying to learn yeah and I think I think I'm coming from a place of really genuine curiosity yeah and actually one of the taglines of the business and I often say the only prerequisite of joining prior is a sense of curiosity and I think I'm a very curious person so I'm just curious as to how they've done that. And I think when people know that you're genuine about that and your genuine curiosity and reverence for what they have done, they can read it if it's authentic and you're not yeah. just trying to be an operator or use them as a stepping stone or a lily pad. They know that. I mean, I know that instantly when yeah. when that's happening now. It's only just begun started to happen to me. But I think when you have that curiosity and you have that respect I think primarily people understand that and they're very willing to help you. And those people actually are the ones that have gotten me through some very difficult circumstances. Mm. It's been like a team of advisors, hasn't it? Well, that's true. I mean, that's absolutely, I have my sort of five women. My staff always say if they want to get something over the line, they know who to go to Mm. to get around me. Really? Yeah. I'm interested in your story because you have had some significant changes of direction and a very strong pivot. 
Well, yes. So I went to the university. I studied food culture, essentially. And at the end of the university time, I was very involved in food justice and activism. I didn't really know where that was going, except that I knew that I wasn't going to work in a kitchen and I wasn't going to work in a farm. But it happened to be that I sat next to Alice Waters, the iconic chef and activist. I sat next to her at a conference in Mexico. And at that stage, her face wasn't as familiar as it is now. And I was completely in awe. And an Australian accent helps, by the way. (laughs) And she offered me an internship. I, I really worked my guts out around that. So you went her. to work yeah, at I went, Shape and East I went, for Alice. Exactly. I went to do an internship for this event called Slow Food Nation. Mm-hmm. And actually they planted this victory garden, so vegetable garden in front of the Civic Centre of San Francisco. And I worked on that and creating this dinner for 600 farmers and food people and the great and good of the food world for the opening of that event. And that particular imagery of a farm in front of a civic building, which looks not dissimilar to Capitol Hill or Mm. the White House, was beamed across the world, across the Associated Press. And I'm certain that that was the kind of wellspring of the food movement and certainly the thing that tipped the scales for an incoming administration led by Barack Obama and his wife, Michelle, who Mm. then subsequently planted the garden at the White House. And so I thought I was going to work for Alice at this incredible cornucopia of seasonal food and to carry the market basket. And who knows, something very beauty, food, Mm. deliciousness. I got that opportunity and then they were inaugurated and Alice became kind of political Mm. lightning rod. So I was going to be an assistant. And actually in the first couple of weeks, I put one of her appointments in the wrong year Mm. So I quickly identified as not being an assistant and then I became a chief of staff or someone that that could bounce ideas off her. I was very able to stand up to her and I think that's very important to have an opinion and a point of view and she really respected that because she knew that I was coming from a place of respect. So we had five years and it was a roller coaster, extraordinary experience. I learned a lot from Alice. But in the end, she worked us all extremely hard and burnt me out completely. Yeah, and you knew it was time to go. And so- Oh, yeah, it was. And we loved each other. We had this very intense relationship. I'd speak to her at 6.30 in the morning first thing and then often to, at midnight, mm. and it really went on for years. It's also this high-pressure environment. I mean, she had so much power and so much influence for such a small operation. So... As a 25-year-old from Australia that barely knew, kind of, we certainly didn't know the media landscape, certainly didn't know the political landscape. You learned a lot from her, David, and you were thirsty yeah. for knowledge yeah. and you were obviously determined that you were going to make that work no matter what and learn everything that you could and understand that that could be a platform for growth. Absolutely. And I think now that I have my own business, I'm attracted to a great editors, but also the thing about Alice is that she's able to use storytelling and beauty Mm. and a seduction to get people to do what she wants. Yeah, you have to give her credit for that. I think the other thing that is amazing about her is that while her foothold is Chez Panisse, which is a small restaurant in California, she has a totally global view of what she's doing and she sees herself as part of a global movement. Right. My university had that point of view. Mm. Alice had that point of view. I had that point of view as an editor and writer and my business is completely grounded in that.
So David, if I fast forwarded then to what we'll call the Somerset House experience, Mm -hmm. because this was obviously the crucible for Mm. what you're doing now. Let's talk about that. Okay, so I was transitioning out of Alice Land and it was really towards the end. The restaurant had a fire and Alice was engaged to speak at a place called Ballymaloo House and they'd started a food literacy festival. This is in Ireland? In Ireland, yes, in Cork. And Alice said, can you go and take my place because it was a week beforehand. So I went and filled in for her did my version of her speeches, let's say. It was an incredible thing, a really remarkable moment because it was their first festival and they have a lot of currency in the food world because they've written umpteen amount of cookbooks, the family behind Ballymaloo. Uh, and so it was everyone you can think of, Stephanie Alexander, Maggie Beer, David Thompson in terms of the Australians, but Claudia Roden, Marta Jaffrey, uh, Simon Thompson, and Sky Gingell, now that's how we lead to the next uh, chapter. Sky heard me speak and we then sat next to each other at a dinner. Just explain who Sky oh, is. Oh, excuse me. Sky Gingell is an Australian expat chef who had a restaurant called Petersham Nurseries and then now has a beautiful restaurant in London called Spring. And we sat next to each other at this dinner, which was these luminaries of the food world. And one of these things, let's say, did not belong in that dinner, and that was me. But I sat next to Sky, and we more than hit it off. I mean, it was a total meeting of the minds and heart and aesthetics and everything. And so I think the dinner started at 8 p.m., and we didn't stop talking till 2.30. I mean, I'll never forget that evening. And from there, we built this incredible friendship. And she was just creating Spring at the time. She left Petersham. She wanted a new chapter. I mean, speaking of unpaused. But she was opening a restaurant in Somerset House and the wing adjacent to where Spring is now, this great public space, was open. And she dreamt up this idea that maybe I would create something which was not a think tank but a place to experiment with ideas around food. It would have a school and a library and all sorts of things. So then we set about creating this thing and I poured every single idea that I'd ever had from my travels as an editor and then also university and childhood and all of these different ideas into this one idea. And it was a proposal that got very, very close to happening. I built out the plans, we talked to architects. I had the whole philosophy and manifesto done. I'd started pulling in the aesthetics of the whole thing. And I worked on it for five months. And in that time, I stopped writing because I thought this was going to happen. This was Mm. certainly going to happen. And I presented to the powers that be in the London Council and the Heritage Department. I thought, this is my future forevermore. Bearing in mind that you lived in America and this was all happening in London, you were having to go to and fro. Well, exactly. I went to and fro, but then I lost my visa, so I was stuck in London. (laughs) It was a nightmare. I didn't have two cents to rub together either, so I was working on this in cafes and all the while pretending that I was sort of a big glamorous editor. This was my one shot. Anyway, I did the presentation. I happened to have to go to Australia for my sister's wedding. I was going to wait to hear for the final rubber stamp, um, very happily, very proud on the way to Australia, going to kind of show everyone that I would have this big thing, literally in a palace in London. And I got off the plane with an email saying, it's not going to happen. It's all over. So in Australia, tail between my legs, a place that I guess I spent most of my time trying to escape, 
Um, and prove yourself. Yeah, and prove myself in a very different industry. I was a very outsider teenager. It's not easy in a place that is conservative in that way to to survive, actually, to be honest. I mean, not in a dramatic sense, but you really have to have a, a strong drive or you have to... And a point of view, on. I think. Yeah, a point of view. You have to continue on. And Anyway, came back to Brisbane. No visa for the United States. Zero money. Shattered dreams completely. Can I just say, this is where it's marvellous to have parents. Yeah. Well, it's true. But not that they, I mean, very understanding, wonderful parents, but it's a whole different world to what they're used to. So they couldn't really understand what I was doing and at what level we were playing at. I know, but I just want to say, David, that you had support. Well, this is the thing. This is where I was going to lead to. I've always had people who believed in me, whether it was at the lowest ebb or at the high watermark. And I've maintained those relationships throughout. And so they're the ones that got me through. And so I started to write myself out of a hole. Mm. I started to pitch more stories again. I built up my portfolio. Because once, you're, once you take yourself out of the game in editorial, you're out. And so I had to put my foot back in the door. And then ultimately that led to an offer to be international editor at Condé Nast Traveller. That led to a visa. And then was four or five years of travelling the world. But just to focus on that for a moment, so you sat down, you were at your lowest step and you thought, the skill I have that I can parlay that will take me out of this hole is my writing and my yeah. eye mm-hmm. and you used that in Australia initially. Yeah. You know, the great thing about having done that Somerset project is that I was pulling in ideas from all around the world. Mm-hmm. So, again, coming back to that, I started to turn those ideas into stories mm-hmm. and I'm able to... To create a story or to tell a story or to find a story. But you did have a big portfolio of yeah. work and experience yes. that you could think, yes. I could recast this That's material right. into something tangible. That's right. Exactly. And so I decided that I would really give it a go to be a travel editor. There's really only a few travel editors that worked in the way that I did. And so it was story to story, but I managed to successfully stitch together a story after story after story program so that I would be on the rows of 200 days of the year. And that kind of rebuilt my confidence. What, how did you resolve things with Sky in the end? What did she say to you? Oh, well, I know this is going to sound crazy, but we went to a psychic together. <laughs> David. Oh, <my laughs> and we dear. did. We did. And the psychic said, well, you're going to do something together that is far more important and far more powerful than this. So I took that as a heartening thing because then that precipitated a conversation about, you know, sometimes we will do something together. Something will happen and this work won't be wasted. Yeah, exactly. But then the other thing is, is that she was so invested in it too and we had, we just had this, there's a saying, fast friendship. I can't tell you how intense that was so so quickly because, Mm. you know, we kind of had 10 years concentrated into two months. I mean, so that's one of the great things is that I have kind of my closest friend. I mean, definitely kindred spirit, Sky. Actually, one exercise that I did do when the Somerset House thing collapsed is I wrote to a few people that I'd worked with and I said, could you please tell me what you think my strengths are and my weaknesses are? Mm. I don't know why I did that. It's also a bit of a punishment, frankly, but... (laughs) They all came back because they knew that I was in such bad shape. Mm. They all came back very, very honestly. And having someone else understand what your strengths and weaknesses are and then telling you that honestly 
is very powerful. Quite a brave thing to do. Well, I don't know how I did that, but I think the same at that same time, the, the film The Eye Has to Travel, the biography of yes. Diana Vreeland came out. I can't really overstate how important that film and her career has been for me. It's the, the, the one of her many famous lines is that the, be, the, the greatest life is the life you choose and you create it for yourself. You think about what you want, you manifest that and you keep on aiming for it. So you dug yourself out by writing and this mm-hmm. took a period of time. You became an editor at Condé Nast Traveller. Yeah, and, and a few other titles. And was that when you moved to New York? I mean, you were on the road for two Yes, days. that's when I moved to New York. I did it in a very different way. It was kind of at the tail end of the glamour era of Condé Nast where the writer would be separate to the photographer and the editorial team was completely church and state with the publishing team. But I had been so scrappy from my previous writing experience for Australian magazines that I would do the whole thing myself. Mm. I'd build the itinerary. Mm. I'd get the photographer. I'd shoot the thing. I'd be really pounding the pavement, creating these itineraries. And at first... They were shocked and it was a hugely threatening thing Mm. to do it all. And I really had to fight for that. Of course, ultimately, they realised that they couldn't do this thing of sending a writer who would do those incredibly boring stories about. And then I saw this and really a writer rather than a travel editor, great writer rather Mm. than a travel editor. I was never going to win kind of the Pulitzer for my travel writing. I was much, much better at building an itinerary, finding the essence of the place, romanticising mm. it and selling the dream of a particular place. But I think you also really understood how important the photographer was. Oh, Photographs yeah. were very different, weren't they? Exactly. Big collaborations with photographers. And that was then became a little bit of the hallmark. So what I would do is I would go around the, the world, various photographers that I would campaign to choose, and they used to think I was the biggest pain in the neck because I would insist on certain photographers that I would collaborate with but then I'd have the goods so they'd have to to buy Mm. it so I'd come back to the office and then I'd show these images and these words and they Mm. would they'd love it well I can really understand now how this was the genesis of what you're doing now so that was the printed word Mm -hmm. and the beautiful photographic Mm -hmm. images and now you're trying to translate that and make available those stories as experiences for your clients. Exactly. But still, documenting your success in a tangible way has been a very powerful thing. Yes. And a very powerful tool for you to demonstrate to others that you're credible and worth backing. Yep. I mean, Instagram was powerful for me. I used it as a visual diary in a way to stitch together the stories if I was in a particular place. Mm. So I'd take five pictures a day and that were the kind of things that I, I knew that I would write about because I was terrible about writing down and your, your rights make the point that I'm much more visually led than I am written to be honest and I would take those photos and I built a little bit of a following of the right people it's not an influencer thing but the right editors and the right mm. industry people and they followed along and I used my instinct around what the next destination is telling different stories that, that weren't being told mm. I would go to say Beirut find these particular places that hadn't been written about and then all of a sudden they'd get emails from editors saying, oh, can you do a story on that? And that's kind of how it happened. So Instagram was a great way to show where I was, great little platform for me to express. I'd always fall in love. Every time I go to somewhere, I completely fall in love with the place or find something that is really special. And it's a very genuine thing. And a photo was a good way to capture that. So how are you going to stop yourself from becoming a travel agent? How are you actually going to do that? Because this could go 
either way. Well, the reason why Prior has such a strong editorial and why we create our own experiences and build our own experiences and the reason we're a club model, and so it's by application, is not only because we want people that share the same point of view, and that's why. It's that idea of I would never have joined a club that would have me, so it's kind of ironic that I started a club. But the reason why I've created a club is that I want to build a community of curious people that are interested in actual diversity and those types of experiences. So a travel agent or a concierge service is much more receptive but I'm not going to be fulfilling riders for people. I don't want to arrange baskets of kiwi fruit in Oslo in February. Mm-hmm. I don't, I'm not going to do that. I won't mm-hmm. do that. And so the reason we have an editorial that confirms our point of view, which is my magazine background, mm-hmm. the reason why our aesthetics are so unusual and strong is to make our audience self-selecting. And I am not afraid to give my opinion because an editor, as a writer, I mm-hmm. am not afraid for that. If we don't meet in that middle point when not go- it's not going to work and so people really like that people want to trust a point of view and they really like a collaboration around that how do you also guard against being what I'd call corporatized how do you stay true to your own voice and vision what are the boundaries that you put around that so that you're not seduced by the lure of corporate success Because that's a really big thing with creative people, that Mm. success can sometimes destroy the germ of what made them successful. I have an incredible co-founder who is someone that really understands me and my creative process and my point of view and what is is absolutely non-negotiable. And the reason is he was the person that backed Rene Redzepi and Rene Redzepi has a very, very clear vision of what Mm. he's going to do. That's why I felt very comforted going in partnership with him. You can't do everything alone, can you? You need a lot of people to make a success. You know, Mark Blazer, who is my co-founder, was going to be my investor Mm. and involved because he's very interested and he's a creative too. He's creative around money and he's creative around strategy. He was going to be my investor. Now, when we started working on this, I very quickly realised that I could not do it alone. This is someone that could barely manage to pack a suitcase. And now I'm managing this quite big Mm. business. So Mark has been incredibly helpful in helping me in areas that I'm not strong. I'm getting much stronger in them, but I just never knew how to do that. He's been a great mentor, David, and I think having met him... I can see that he has a very sympathetic temperament. He's not trying to be you. Mm-hmm. He's a compliment to you. You no, can't do it without him and he can't do it without Yeah, and you. look, we haven't even had a crossword with each other. We completely see eye to eye, but he is incredibly respectful of my vision. It's our shared vision, but my, the product, which is my thing and my point of view mm-hmm. and the way that the voice and all the, and the aesthetics, he's only ever supportive around that. I feel like it's a little bit of a dream come true. Incredibly lucky. Do you see a lot more creative projects coming out of this? For instance, I know that you're in the process of book project. Well, yes. Oh, and creating sort of my manifesto book, I guess, Mm. my view on the world, let's Mm. say, with a publisher in the United States. They have given us almost an imprint within the publisher to create single subject guides so country or city guides let's say but that are timeless Mm. printed guides on a a place very quickly become out of date but books that are about the verandas the humidity the tropical fruits Mm. 
the Queenslander architectural vernacular, all those things. Cracking Queensland nuts. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> those things, we hope, are pretty timeless. And to tell those stories of the actual essence of those places, that's what I'm really excited about. In two years' time, the book will have come out. Um, the club will be at a certain number of members. I hope to have several chapters around the world, have a very robust programming that is not only bespoke service, because there's only one leg of the of the chair, a, b- a very robust programming around craft. A chef has a particular book. I want to do a dinners with them or... I'm going to create house parties or pop-up hotels and things that have people be a traveler 365 days of the year. That's how I think about it. Endlessly curious. I come up with a new idea every 10 minutes. Actually, Mark's very good because he edits me. Speaking of editing. But there's certainly a lot more creative capacity there. What is amazing at launching this club is the people that have joined, the extraordinary creatives that are incredible travelers themselves. That has been the greatest compliment maybe of my whole life is that I've created this not only has there been great press and validation which was not a guaranteed of course but the people that have joined are already people that I admired as travelers with a worldview and with extraordinary taste they were are people that want to go further that are curious that want to see incredible things they may have been to Bhutan but what's the next Kind of where do you go after Bhutan? Yeah. Well, maybe it's Sikkim when the rhododendrons are out and the tea gardens are being harvested. It's endless. It's exciting, David. I must say, when I used to take people up to the Great Barrier Reef for those scientific experiences, when you actually go out on the reef, I'd say, you don't need to see the whole of the Great Barrier Reef in one day. If mm-hmm. you just focus on one mm-hmm. cubic metre, which is the David Attenborough mm-hmm. approach, mm-hmm. there are layers and layers and layers and layers of life and beauty yeah. that if you just stand still for a minute, you might chance upon it's true and if you take that approach to any place yeah you will come across something that you won't expect well it's not only that I mean I really push back against this idea of when people say I've done Spain we've done Spain how can you have possibly done Spain I mean how can you have done a place you could be in Seville for six months and you wouldn't even scratch the surface of that place and you were advising people who've come to a point where they've had a bad experience, a cataclysmic Mm -hmm. end, and often it's for reasons beyond their control, to one chapter in their working life and they are trying to revive this dormant career, what would you say to them? What would be the the one piece of advice that you would give someone in that situation? This is going to sound like the most New York possible answer, but I think it's actually true. But one, go see a therapist or someone that you can actually talk it out with. And whether it's yeah. a business guy, you need, to, you need to talk it out and you need yeah. someone to guide that through. Yeah. And you should not be afraid to do that. And there should be no stigma around that. You absolutely have to do that. The next thing, and this probably only applies to, I think, people that are really aesthetically driven or are sensually driven, you need to nourish that part of yourself. You need to be surrounded by beauty and taste. And, and I think that is the way to, when you're completely empty, you have to fill yourself up again. You have to fill the tank up. And I think that is a really good way to, to go. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Unpaused. I'd love you to subscribe on iTunes or share the podcast with someone you think might like it. 
You can find the show notes or sign up for news on my website, unpaused.net, or see what we're up to on Instagram or my LinkedIn page. Bye for now.